Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their stories of experience, strength, and hope. This podcast is my gift of service to Alcoholics Anonymous and strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. Today's podcast features an interview with my friend Diane G., who's been sober an astonishing 48 years. Her story of longevity in AA is especially intriguing in that it credits service work for the complete turnaround early in her program. Whether it was making coffee, cleaning up after the meeting, or representing her groups at the district and area levels, Diane refers to this vital service work throughout her program as both life-changing and absolutely necessary to her sobriety. Of particular importance was the role she played as area secretary, which required intensive listening during business meetings to accurately record the minutes. As she honed her listening skills, she found that her focus shifted from herself onto others. Over the many years, as she continued her service activities, as well as sponsorship of many women, Diane discovered a new love for her fellows in AA by simply listening more. Forty-eight years is an unfathomable amount of time, especially when viewed by newcomers to the program. It naturally creates some apprehension about even approaching old-timers. But Diane goes out of her way to welcome newcomers and help them understand the relationship between service performed and sobriety maintained. She embodies the truism that long-term contented sobriety is the natural result of staying actively engaged in the program on a daily basis. Diane's story is chock full of simple wisdom that anyone can use to stay sober a day, a week, a month, years, or even decades. Her sobriety date is the only part of her story that sounds old. The rest of her message is as fresh as the next meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and just as inviting. The audio on this remote interview is a little sketchy, but in a few minutes you won't even notice it as you become enthralled in my interview with my AA sister, Diane G. Hi, I'm Diane. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Diane. I'm so glad that you're able to do this, be able to share your story with listeners who are looking for meaningful ways to improve their own sobriety. One of the interesting things about the podcast, though, is that my guests on the podcast have tended to be either people I've known for years. I've actually interviewed a couple of sponsees and my sponsor. Uh, they're people who I've known for years in the program through the rooms. I've also interviewed some people who I met during the COVID lockdown and through the Zoom meetings, and then certain people who I've only met recently, like you, whose stories, just from the few minutes I've heard you share in meetings, are so captivating. I'd like to know the rest of that story. You fall into that category. You've been sober a very long time. Since April 4th, 1973. So you just passed? 48. 48 years. Wow. What was AA like when you got there in 73? I can tell you what it was like from my perspective, sure. but I can't tell you that it's necessarily the truth <laughs> because I was so inside myself uh -huh. and I was so terrified and that came out in anger for me. It did. So I didn't get really close to a lot of people, mm -hmm. but I will tell you that I got into the best home group. I was so fortunate because I got sober in 1973. I went to this Friday night meeting in mm -hmm. the lower level of the city hall, mm -hmm. and there were a lot of old timers there, mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. lot of people I would come to love and cherish. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, they were just annoying <laughs> because they wanted to tell me what to do uh -huh. all the time. Uh -huh. They wanted to give me a job, uh -huh. be of service. Sure. So they made me greeter uh -huh. for about... 15 minutes. Oh, my. Yeah, I was a bad greeter <laughs> because I was so insecure. Yeah, I get it. And if somebody would walk past me, uh -huh. I would chase them into the meeting. 
and make them shake my hand. And <laughs> that just doesn't welcome people. So yeah. they made me the coffee maker. Okay. That's a low stress job, isn't it? It was the best job ever. Yeah. I was a coffee maker. I got there early. Uh-huh. Didn't have to talk to anybody. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Made coffee. Everybody said what good coffee it was. Uh-huh. And then afterward, they had a little crew of two or three people who would clean up everything, including the coffee. I see. So I didn't even have to do cleanup. The, All I had to do was make the coffee. Yeah, yeah. So you got into service right away when you came in. Well, I got into service because Jerry F., mm-hmm. who was a, a, one of the mentors in my group, uh-huh. was the delegate at that time. I see. Uh huh. And so he thought, because I was a bad greeter, <laughs> and I after the first year, I needed to move on uh-huh. from the coffee maker. I see. So he said, why don't you be our GSR? So he got me into general service uh-huh. by asking me to be the GSR. So I did that for two years. Wow, you did that with only one year in the program too. I might have had two. I did have two years yeah. because they tried to let me be the treasurer. Oh, okay. But I had a problem stealing. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't all that funny back then. I'll bet. Because groups work really hard to pay their rent. Yeah, yeah. And I did, it didn't even occur to me. I, I honestly meant to borrow it, mm-hmm. but then I just needed it. So I kept taking money out of the treasury. And then I had to tell them mm-hmm. because I loved them. I mean, I, I already was so connected to them. Mm-hmm. And I told them I stole their money. That must have been a tough thing for you to live with while you were going to meetings and seeing the people. It was really, really hard. Was it? I, I loved them. And it's like having this deep, dark secret. Yeah. Everybody around you sees you one way, but you know who you are. Yeah. But I got free because I, one night I just went up to a group of the people in there and I said, look, this is what's happened. You don't have enough money to make rent because I have borrowed it. Mm -hmm. So if you could take another collection, I'll pay you back. Mm. I promise you I'll pay you back. Mm -hmm. And it took me, it took me actually two years to pay them back. After you came clean about it. Mm -hmm. It took me that long to get the money because I, I took quite a bit of money and I paid more than I thought I took just to be sure that I didn't cheat them. I get it. I get it. So I've met a few other people in my years in sobriety in AA who did the very same thing, who, quote, borrowed from the AA reserves and funds, and they ended up having to come back at some point and make amends. You said it took you, how long was the borrowing money going on before you stopped and let them know? It was a while. Really? It was probably a year. Hmm, hmm. Mm-hmm. I just borrow a little bit here and a little bit there. And then all of a sudden I needed some money. So I took it and I couldn't get it back because I had I had relied on, you know, kind of keeping a balance that I thought was repayable. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. Yeah. Because I used it for rent. Yeah. What was what was their response to you when you when you told them that? Well, they said, you know, that's stealing, Diane. Yeah. That's stealing. It's not borrowing. Uh huh. That's stealing. Yeah. So if you, since you've told us now, if you pay it back, we'll be even. Huh. They were one of the most inclusive, understanding, but to the point groups I have ever met because they told me, they said, if you don't pay it back, you're going to be in trouble. Hmm. And if you want to stay sober, you need to take care of this. Hmm. Hmm. So all this happens within your first two years. Honest to God, Howard, I couldn't tell you exactly. It was within my first probably two to four years. Okay. It was in that period. Yeah, I get that. Backing up just a little bit, what was it that made you finally come into AA? Did you have a tough upbringing or what, what got you involved with alcohol to the extent that you needed AA at some point? Well, I started drinking when I was 14. Mm-hmm. I had a difficult childhood. Mm-hmm. Just I had a, a narcissistic mom and a dad who had to work all the time. Mm. And I was the oldest of three kids. Mm-hmm. And I was always incredibly insecure. Mm-hmm. And there was never enough, mm. ever. Yeah. So I started hanging out 
in Anaheim is where we lived. Yeah. And I started hanging out with motorcycle games. Motorcycle, huh? When I was 14. Hmm. And my first drink was peppermint schnapps. <laughs> it was so good. It was like a warm candy cane. Oh, my gosh. And it went down. And all of a sudden, I was smart uh-huh. and funny uh-huh. and pretty. I mean, that was it. I knew that I needed alcohol or whatever the hell that was that tasted like peppermint. So you knew that after your very first drink? My very first drink, it was like the answer to everything. I could talk to those guys like I belonged there. I was 14. Uh, uh. And it just changed everything. Uh huh. Uh huh. So... By the time I was 18, Uh a couple of the guys suggested that I might want to stop drinking because I did a lot of other things. Uh And I I got into a lot of trouble. I ended up getting arrested. I went to juvenile hall. I spent a year in reform school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I I was kind of a mess. And there, you know, motorcycle gangs, they get a bad rap, but some of the guys were just really nice to me. Uh huh. Uh huh. They said they had a friend Uh whose son was in AA, and maybe I would want to meet her, Uh and she could help me. Because I I also ended up being homeless a lot, Hmm. because my parents, after a while, when I turned 18, just didn't want me around. So you were living at home until you were 18, and then they just... At home, except for the period of time I was locked up. Okay, Uh uh-huh. Which for one time was a year when I was in the reform school, the correctional school. I see. Uh-huh. I was there for a year. So I just, mm. and I got out and I was 18. I'd never had a job mm-hmm. and I didn't really know how to work. Mm-hmm. I went to high school, but I didn't finish. Mm-hmm. So when they suggested that, I just thought they were being nice to me. So I did it. I met her. She was very nice. I still remember her name, which is odd to me because I don't remember any of theirs. Huh. I remember what they look like, but I don't remember their names. And her name was Mercedes. Mercedes. Uh huh. She was so sweet, and she got it gave me some clothes. She let me sleep on her couch, mm-hmm. and she suggested that I, you know, go ahead and do what they asked me to do and go to some meeting. Go to AA. Uh huh. Now, when the behavior between fourteen and eighteen, and the trouble that you got into, and the difficulties you had including the year in reform school. Were all of those driven by alcohol? Were drugs involved as well? How did alcohol affect your behavior? Well, alcohol took away any sense of right or wrong. Hmm. It was what I wanted, what I needed at that moment. Mm -hmm. Alcohol gave me that power. And I did a lot of other things. I grew up, Hmm. I mean, I'm 73. Uh I grew up during the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And there was a lot of acid, Mm -hmm. a lot of LSD, a lot of heroin, Mm -hmm. especially with the reds and whites. Mm. And I did everything I needed to do to keep drinking. Because if I was drinking and starting to get ready to knock out and I wanted to stay uh, engaged, I did some whites. Oh, okay. And then sometimes I would last a really long time and they wanted me to go. So I would do some reds hmm. and I just kind of stayed chemically balanced, but it was always around drinking. So it was to prolong the drinking and deal with any effects that you were having. Did you get sick when you drank or did you have hangovers, blackouts? What kind of drinker were you? I definitely had blackouts. Hmm. There are large chunks of my drinking I don't remember mm-hmm. just coming to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And being in trouble. I I actually got arrested in a blackout once. Hmm. I didn't remember anything about it until I woke up in jail. Hmm. Not the most fun I ever had, but it was interesting. And for me, LSD was like a a disconnect. It was like a spiritual experience without ever believing in anything spiritual. It was just (laughs) like another... Another worldly experience. I really kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, you're the second guest in about four programs now that has said the same thing about LSD. He said he did it maybe 14 or 15 times, and 
I asked him the question that I'll ask you, did you ever have any any flashbacks or any uh, repercussions from that later on? Nope. So your experience with LSD was, was a good one. You were drinking, you were enjoying the drinking, doing the pills were facilitating your being able uh, to drink. Did you also become an IV drug user? I was a social heroin user. <laughs> if somebody, what? What's a social heroin user? <laughs> if somebody had it, I would do it, but I never went out to get it on my own. Doesn't it create cravings? Oh, yeah. It, it doesn't do it enough, but I didn't. Oh, okay. I would like fix one night and then I wouldn't fix again for maybe months. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I know. So you were fortunate that you didn't get physically addicted to it. I did not get physically addicted to heroin. I was social. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. If somebody, if the, the guys around me were doing heroin that night, I just took a little hit with them. But it was not my preference. Hmm. Because I'll tell you the truth. Uh -huh. This is so weird. All the sh crap I put myself through, but I don't like needles. Yeah. So I, I wasn't anxious. But the fact that I ever did it at all yeah. tells me that I didn't have many boundaries. Yeah, I get that. So the people who you were around were involved in all sorts of things that allowed you to partake of whatever it was that you wanted virtually whenever you wanted. Well, pretty much until I, you know, until I start, I kept getting in trouble. Yeah. And then they tried to get me some help. Yeah. With AA. And then when I left AA, uh -huh. I, I stayed for about six months. Okay. This is after you first came in with Mercedes. This is when I was 18. Right. I stayed for about six months uh -huh. and, you know, they were kind of nice and they kind of felt sorry for me, which I always liked, right. you know. Uh -huh. And then it just seemed like too much. Huh. I mean, they wanted me to get a job. Uh -huh. They wanted me to, you know, get a place to live and get a car and huh. do all that stuff. And I thought... I don't want to do that. Yeah. Why can't they just, just keep going like this? They take care of me. Yeah. And I come to their meetings and I listen to their stuff. And that felt like that was my job. Huh. When you say they, are you talking about a large group of people or just a, a core group of people who are telling you to do these things so intimately? Just a core. Yeah. Not very large. There were maybe six women mm -hmm. who were friends of Mercy's is what I call Mercy. them, Mercedes. They were her friends, and so they tried to help me. Huh. Now, did you have a sponsor at that point? No. Okay, so no sponsor, but you were coming to meetings, and you were not drinking or using during the six months that you... No. Okay, so you proved that you could go to AA and not drink, but do little else except maybe make the coffee or... I did nothing else. Nothing else, Yeah. I helped them clean up, like after the meeting, uh -huh. I would put chairs away and stuff like that. But I really didn't do anything else. And things were happening inside that I wasn't prepared for. Like the the anxiety that I always carried was coming back and it was getting really strong. Mm -hmm. And one day I just left, I just packed up the few things I had and I just left and I was homeless mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. And then, you know how it is, oh, yeah. you can find places to live. Sure, sure. So I did that and I would get arrested and sometimes I would stay in jail. And mm -hmm. then the last time uh -huh. I got arrested, I got sentenced to um, a program they had back in the, the day called The Family. The Family. Uh-huh. It was a drug and, and uh, alcoholic drug addict, addict program right. where they tried to help. Mm-hmm you know, uh, people who seemed hopeless huh. and helpless. So they sent me there. Plus I was in trouble. I mean, I got sentenced there from being arrested. Uh -huh. It was, uh, I think it was a year that you had to stay nine months to a year. And I went and honest to God, Howard, I wish I could remember anything. Uh. <laughs> I did. But I don't, I, they had groups, they had therapists, mm -hmm. they, talk to you. They had, you know, different activities, I guess. I was there probably close to a year. You were living there? Yeah. Well, yeah, I was sentenced there. 
It was like being in jail. Right. Okay. So it's a therapeutic approach instead of incarceration right. at, at that point. Right. And when you were there, was AA introduced at any point? Did meetings come in or did you guys go out to meetings at all? They they didn't take me out to me. They didn't take us out. Okay. Yeah. But they did have meetings there, I think once a week. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Because they had people come in, you know, like hospitals and institutions. Yeah. They had people come in and bring a meeting. I do remember that. Huh. And you had already been exposed to it for six months. You had already done it. Right. Was there something, and, and I don't I don't mean to keep going back to the six months, but I'm just curious, was there something in particular about AA within that six-month period that really bugged you? Whenever it was you encountered it, you just were repulsed by it? I, I didn't like people telling me what to do. Huh. I didn't like the idea of... God. Okay. Yeah. Who I already thought was, if there was a God, he was already so pissed at me. I didn't want to see what was going to happen. Okay. I had trouble with people telling me I couldn't do something or I had to do something. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, it was just me. I see a lot of people come in like that. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take too long to see if you actually stay and open your head a little right. bit. It doesn't take long to see that it's not about them telling you what to do. Right. It's about them sharing with you right. what changed them, right. what worked for them, what helped them get past all the craziness and insanity. Yeah. But it took me a while to hear that. Yeah, I get that. That's, I think, pretty common with people who come into the program and slip and come back in and slip is that they mistake people talking about themselves for those same people talking about them. So right. this is what I'm doing sounds to you like this is what you should be doing, right? Yeah, this is what you need to this do. This is what you need to and do. Another part of, of my story uh -huh. here is that so much of what I brought in yeah. was a lie. The reason that that woman helped me in the first place mm -hmm. is because she thought I was an American Indian because I told her I was, oh, okay. and they were American Indians. I see. But I'm not. Huh. It took me a long time, or it took me a while after I got, I came back to AA and got sober to, to let people know, because I became things, mm -hmm. things that I love. Like, I love American Indians. I think they're amazing. Yeah. I think their history is amazing, everything about them. Yeah. But I'm not one. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought it made me more likable. Hmm. And um, I also told people I was a surfer. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the ocean was right there and everybody's surfing. And I got a red surfboard and I loved it and I carried it, <laughs> but I didn't go in the ocean. <laughs> did they Did they ever ask you about that? Well, I yeah, I didn't. I had to tell them that eventually, too, after they asked me to go surfing with them like a dozen times and I couldn't find another excuse. Oh I'm afraid of sharks. Yeah. I mean, really afraid of sharks. Yeah. And I, I would take the surfboard and I would carry it out there and I would sit on the sand with it, but I just couldn't go in the ocean. Hmm. So really not much of a surfer. Mm -hmm. So you were assuming these alter egos, let's say, being an, an American Indian and being a surfer as an attempt to get people to like you or to be accepted in the groups that you were in? Because those were things that made me like. Yeah, I get it. Uh-huh. That made me feel like, hey, I'm worth being around. Sure. Look. Yeah. I'm a, I have a red surfboard and I'm an Indian. So after six months, you left AA. And then how long were you back out there until you came back again? Well, I was back out for five or six years before I got arrested. Uh -huh. And then I got sent to Norwalk State Hospital uh -huh. for that program. Uh -huh. I was 25 years old when I got sober. Okay. But I, what happened is I got out of that program uh -huh. and I drank. Hmm. I didn't think. I didn't remember anything. I got out of that program and I started feeling those old feelings. Huh. Like, you're a mess. You're not enough. You're never going to be enough. You disappoint everybody. Not even your family is talking to you. Mm. You don't have any friends. Mm. And I needed to drink. Yeah. Yeah. So I drank, but I got out of that program at the end of the year. 
um, right after I turned 25 in December, uh-huh. and I got sober April 4th, 1973. So yeah, so 70. You got out in late 72. You drank in 70, early 73. I went in right um, at 24, and I came out when I was 25. Uh-huh. Okay. And four months after I turned 25, and and got out of there, I started drinking the day I got out. Four months later, I came back to AA because. I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. It felt like I was going to die soon. And I was in trouble. I didn't have anywhere to be. Uh I couldn't get a job. Uh Um, I didn't really want a job, but I, nobody would hire me anyway. So I came back into the rooms and Mm -hmm. I got really lucky. They helped me find my place. They, I mean, coffee maker, GSR. Then they elected me DCM, uh-huh. which is the district committee yeah. member, and they gave you a gavel. <laughs> okay. So you get like this little feeling of power. Yeah, yeah. Start the meeting, end the meeting. Yeah. Then this is this was the life changing, complete turnaround for me was general service. Huh. They wanted me to stand for a position in the area. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, I'll do that. But I don't want to be the secretary. Mm-hmm. That just felt like work to me sure. to be the secretary. Uh-huh. And they said, look, just put your name in for everything. And whatever you get chosen for mm-hmm. will be what you're supposed to do. Sure. And I liked them enough by then. I thought, what the hell? I mean, I'm not going to be secretary. Uh-huh. And I was elected secretary. Uh-huh. And I learned one of the most valuable lessons of my life yeah. that I never listened. Huh. I never listened because I would have little conversations going on in my head when people were talking to me. I would be judging their attire yeah. or their use of the English language. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was horrible. I But I didn't discover that until I became secretary because you have to listen. Yeah, It is essential if you're going to take minutes. So huh. that job That's interesting. taught me how to be a sponsor, uh-huh. a good sponsor, because I I had to listen. Yeah. I had to listen to what you were saying so that I could take minutes. Yeah. And I became a really good secretary. That's amazing. I actually enjoyed the hell out of it. When you were doing this, uh, when you were elected as secretary, how many years had you been back in AA? We're talking about 1973, April of 73. You come in. So I was about uh, seven years sober at that point. Okay. So you, you did this after quite a few years of uh, initially becoming sober. Well, every every position is two, two years, years in general service. Okay. Service. Yeah. So when was your first general service position? How long were you sober when you did that? Probably around three years. Then I, by the time I was done, I was five. Then I was the DCM from six and seven. Uh-huh. And then I became the secretary of the area. Huh. And um, I did that for two years. And then when I was nine and a half years sober, uh-huh. uh, 34 years old, I was elected delegate of the Mid-Southern California area. Wow. It was an amazing experience. It was, I served in 82, 83, uh-huh. on panel 32. Uh-huh. And I seriously, absolutely changed my life. Yeah, that's astounding. Uh, Did you hook up with your same sponsor who you had had, or did you get a brand new sponsor? Did you start working the steps immediately? Uh, For for those people who are curious, okay, so what did it take, Diane, for you to get to the point where they would want you to be uh, representing them? What were the first two or three years like with regard to your program? I got a sponsor. Uh Uh-huh. Her name was Irish Annie. She had quite a reputation around the area. She was Irish. Irish, sure. And she was amazing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And she was so brutally honest with me. Mm. And in a way that I totally understood. Because mm-hmm. what she told me once was, you know, I would like you a lot better if we weren't so much alike. <laughs> yeah. And it was, I mean, I could see that. And yeah. I totally understood it but she was sober uh-huh. and she was happy uh-huh. and I watched her and I didn't mind that we were so much alike huh. and that I just really I loved her and she she let me take my time with the steps in the beginning uh-huh. I tried to take a fourth step on a matchbook cover <laughs> she wouldn't let me do that but 
Because you know they used yeah. to have those mac covers with lines on them. Yeah, right. And I tried to just put a couple of things. That oh. She said, no. so I worked all my steps with her. And what she told me when I was done is that if I cared at all about the way I felt, mm-hmm. if I cared at all about staying sober, mm-hmm. I would make it my business to invest myself in those steps on a regular basis. Hmm. And at the end of that, when I felt comfortable and settled in the steps Mm -hmm. to remember that 10, 11 and 12 Mm -hmm. were permanent. Yeah. Yeah. You need to do 10 and 11 and 12 for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. My other really close connection and especially the general service one was jerry f and his wife gloria Mm, mm -hmm. they were amazing Mm. Uh, he was the one in general service he was the delegate when when he thought i should maybe try to be gsr Mm -hmm. and she was in al-anon and i have never been to an al-anon meeting Uh but i know their principles yeah because gloria she was amazing and They would have me over to their house all the time. They had three sons. One of them died of alcoholism. That's tough. But the other two are still hanging out. So these people were almost like an extended family to you then, huh? Completely, yes. Yeah, yeah. So he got you involved in in the service work at at the district level, at the regional level, at the area level, and you were involved in all of these different positions. So as you're doing all this service for AA and for your groups, were you also sponsoring other women at that time? Yes. What was that experience like for you? Well, once I could get to the place where I could hear what someone else was saying, Mm -hmm. it made it a lot easier for me to have something to say to them, Mm -hmm. give them some input that would be useful to them Mm -hmm. and not about me. Mm -hmm. Because for a long time in my sobriety, it it was still about me. Yeah, sure. I had had some sponsees that were amazing. Mm. Some I still have. Wow. Uh, I have one woman I've sponsored since she was, because we had the same sponsor, Annie. Oh, yeah. Irish Annie. Yeah. When Annie died, I'm five years sober longer than this girl. Uh And when Annie died, she just asked me if I would sponsor her. So I've sponsored her ever since. And I'm 48 and she's 43 years. That's amazing. Yeah, it has been amazing. And I have I have some who are very new. I have some couple who are six, seven years sober. I have a couple who are in their 20s. Mm-hmm. It's really, um, for me, mm-hmm. it is, it's what keeps me grounded. I get that. Because if somebody else is asking me for help, yeah. I need to know what I'm doing. Yeah. I need to know where I'm at. I need to make sure I'm taking care of myself so I am available to be of service. You know, it seems to me that most of the men that I've sponsored over the years, uh, to one extent or another, have the same issues as I have almost uh, in, in an almost uncanny way. It's like, wait a second, how did we how did someone with the exact same situation and I connect out of all the hundreds and thousands of people in the community of AA? Do you find that the case? Very yeah. much. Yeah. Very much. A lot of people who have had problems stealing, uh-huh. lying, uh-huh. Um, ask me to sponsor them. And I, you know, I had a few other problems too. I don't know if they're appropriate to talk about, but when, when I was new, I had been married before I got sober. Mm -hmm. We got divorced because I was such a mess. And and I really married him so that I would have a place to live. Uh And so I hadn't, I really didn't have anything to give. And so I was single when I got sober and I got involved with someone Uh And he was already married. Oh, okay. Yeah. And that was not a good thing. Mm. His wife was in Al-Anon. And we ended up getting married. Mm -hmm. And we were married for 11 months. This is somebody in the program. Yeah, he was sober. He went to my meetings. Uh And I had known him for a little while. And we just really liked each other. And, you know, that crazy kind of stuff when you're not thinking of anybody but yourself. But there were, I did get 
advice that I didn't ask for. <laughs> I'll bet. From a lot of the Al Anon women. I'll bet. What kind of advice was that? <laughs> I wish I would have listened to them. <laughs> they they said, you know what? You're probably going to be sorry for this. Hmm. And it ties in with what I have learned about being sober mm-hmm. and being kind to people. Sure. Because I didn't even think of anybody else, and my behavior stayed with me for a long time. Hmm. I felt horrible about it. I I honestly didn't talk about it for years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it made me feel so selfish and like a really bad person. Uh-huh. However, on the other side of that, it has taught me that if I am thinking of me, mm-hmm. And doing what I want to do for me, mm-hmm. I may have trouble with the outcome. Yeah, yeah. But if I am thinking of you and how I can be kind to you and how I can make it easier for you, no matter what happens with me, I'm going to be better with the outcome. Yeah, yeah. That's an important realization, isn't it? Yeah, and it's hard coming. I'll bet it is. I'll bet it is. Especially when in the midst of things that you're doing that you know you shouldn't be doing, you've got to find more and more clever ways to justify why you're doing it and why it's not wrong. Isn't that right? (laughs) Yeah. Exactly uh, right. Have you ever done that oh, before? Oh yeah, I'm sure. Somewhere along the way, I somewhere along the way. But I was curious. So this kind of behavior is going on, and it sounds like it happened from time to time within your period of sobriety. Did you find that with each occurrence of that behavior, that it became a little bit easier to stop doing it and come to terms with it as you went on, or did it was it as difficult each time as it was the first time? What happened for me uh-huh. and you know, I've seen it happen for others as well. But what happened for me uh-huh. is I just withdrew mm. from that type of relationship. Yes. I have wonderful friends, male and female. Mm-hmm. I have amazing people in my life. Sure. But I have not for a really long time uh-huh. been interested in that kind of relationship again. Okay. I don't want to get married. Uh-huh. I haven't wanted to for a long time. I don't need to date anybody. Uh I like it when we go out as a group and there are men and women who are playful and have fun with each other. But I'm not good at the other part. Yeah. So, yeah, it was was a great lesson. Uh And I'm sure that there are a lot of women in AA who are really grateful. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the big book podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition big book wearing headphones. And we're back. Let me ask you from the standpoint of what you talked about earlier, the, the women being brutally honest with you. And there comes a point at which you have to be that way, either with people in the program, you know, perhaps even on a closer basis with a sponsee. There's sometimes in my sponsoring of men and of talking to other men in the program where there's this conundrum with, do I let them go down the road they're on so that they experience what they need to experience to fall and crash and burn so that they can get back with integrity? Or do I level with them on the front end and tell them, you should not be doing this? Have you ever faced that conundrum yourself? I I have, Howard. And the way I do Uh is I tell them what happened to me. Yeah. And what happened in my life when I did it this way and when I did it that way. Mm -hmm. And if they are insistent on doing the nose dive, Mm -hmm. I tell them that I would be happy to help in any way I can, but I cannot change the outcome when they're running into the wall. Mm. I, I I can't put myself in front of them 
so they can run into me instead of the wall. They're they're going to have to pay their own prices, just like I yeah, do. Yeah, I get that. I get that. It's so important to share that personal experience because otherwise, all you're doing is giving advice instead of speaking your truth. Right. And that didn't work for me. No. I didn't want to hear advice. Well, that actually drove you out of the program. You didn't want people telling you what to do. Right. So that's about as uh, em emphatic as you can make it. Don't tell me what to do. And then leaving, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah. So you've been sober so long that we're talking about literally decades of sobriety. For people who are listening and thinking, God, 48 years sober, I mean... That's they, they they can't comprehend that, but yet it's still a one day at a time thing, right? Very definitely. So, what did the rest of the seventies and eighties and nineties look like for you? The seventies were pretty much getting my feet wet mm -hmm. and getting involved in my group and being learning how to be one among many, uh -huh. part of part of a, a larger group, and we would do things together. Mm -hmm. We would go places, go out to dinner together. And then I had to get a job mm -hmm. when I was first sober. They they suggested that I get a job. Sure. I didn't have any job skills. I hadn't graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. I did try at one point to go to college. Mm -hmm. I got a GED, mm. which I did easily. Mm -hmm. sure. And so I had a GED. Mm -hmm. But when I went to college, I was drinking and I didn't go to class. And that's hard to get a degree. So... I was in in this um, place where I had never worked, and I had a GED and no other really serious education. So I looked in the newspaper, because back in those days it was classified ads. I went out on this one job interview. It was for a pickup and delivery person, and I could drive, so I figured, what the hell, I could do it. So I got to the job, and they did... They were a typesetting company. He took me out in the back and he showed me the little pickup truck that he wanted me to drive mm -hmm. to go around town and picking up and dropping off. So I got in the truck and I said, what is this stick thing doing? <laughs> and he said, it's a stick shift. And I said, oh, I don't drive a stick shift, fully expecting him to get me another car. And he said, honey, if you want the job, you'll drive it. Oh my! And he showed me the clutch. And there are directions on the knob for the gears, first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth mm -hmm, gear. Sure. And I figured out how to drive a stick shift. Hmm. I am the only female in my family who knows how to drive a stick shift. <laughs> and I still know how to drive one. That job, because I was willing mm -hmm. to drive that pickup truck, I ended up getting a career from that job wow. because we did typesetting for a publishing company that did auto racing magazines. Mm -hmm. And one day the owner of the publishing company came up to me and when I was dropping off some stuff and he said, listen, we need a typesetter here. Do you do typesetting? And I said, I type. So they hired huh. me to do typesetting for the publishing company doing the magazine. Wow. I was there for about a year uh -huh. and they hired me as their managing editor. And I had a 28-year career as managing editor because I drove a stick shift. Wow. Wow. That's a great story. I was story. willing to do that. That was a good story. Then mm -hmm. publishing Tank in about 2008. Uh -huh. So uh, they had to eliminate jobs that were able to be taken over by other people. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a journalist, sure. so I couldn't have done that. And they ended up giving me a great severance package. And, mm -hmm. you know, I I had to find another job. Wow. So that was, you know, a couple of decades there. And then wow. I, I decided that I would just do what I did before. I would just look. Mm -hmm. I would just apply for jobs. Yeah. So I did. Uh -huh. I ended up getting a job. I went to these workshops that they have for unemployed sure. people. Uh -huh. They've had them all along. And I, I went to these workshops and they said that it'll be someone you know hmm. or someone who knows sure. you. That's how you get a job these uh -huh. days. Now, this was in 2012. Uh -huh. So um, I was in a meeting one night and a guy came up to me and he said, would you be willing to answer my phones for me? Because my receptionist is pregnant and I forgot that I need another receptionist. Huh. 
And I said, absolutely. So I answered his phones for about a month, and then he decided I should be their HR rep. Oh, my goodness. So they sent me to be certified for human resources, and I became their HR rep. Oh, that's excellent. Wow. Not a job I really enjoyed because you can't ever make anybody yeah, happy. That's... You have to be for the employer and the employee. But it was it was a very good learning experience. Yeah. And then that company went out of business. Huh. And in 2014, I ended up getting the job I have now. And it was this close whether I got it or not because they advertised for one proofreader. Mm-hmm. And there were two of us who were in the top two. Mm -hmm. And the other one was best friends with the boss. And they decided to hire both of us. That was in 2014. And I still work. And that's because I just did what was in front of me. Every time I do Mm -hmm. that, I get someplace I would have never thought of going. It's been amazing. That is amazing. So Over the years, work-wise, what you learned as a group services rep and as secretary, all those things sounds like were pretty good job skills to bring into these particular jobs, huh? Yeah. I mean, there are just some things that I've always been good at. And it wasn't a matter of education or lack of. It was just, there are just some things I've been good at. And I have been put in position to get a job in those areas Hmm. because I have just done what was there in front of me. Hmm. Let me ask you about uh, the role that your higher power plays in all of this for you. Yeah, that's changed radically over the years I've been sober because I did not want God in the beginning. I came from a background of Southern Baptist grandparents Uh and also a a background of Catholicism, uh, Mm. one on either side. From what I understood, from what I heard in church, God was already mad at me. And I was in big trouble no matter what I did. Yeah. So um, I just ignored the God part Uh in the beginning. But then, you know, things happen. Sure. I mean, you get in such pain. Uh And you can't imagine your way out. And my sponsor said, Diane, I know I've told you to talk to God. I know I've told you to do that. And I know you do that. But do you ever listen? Hmm. Do you ever just sit and be still and listen? Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, Howard, that has been the greatest gift in my sobriety Hmm. is learning how to truly listen Mm -hmm. And having that spiritual connection be internal sure, instead of in the head. Yeah, from the heart instead of from, yeah. from the mind. So it sounds to me like the advice you got to listen from a practical standpoint, just in getting along in the program, turned out to be the same expert advice that you needed with regard to prayer and meditation and connection with a higher power. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you your opinion. Um, it's, it seems like, at least in my life, there have been plenty of times where I've noticed God more often when things are going bad and then I get through them than I do when things are going well and I get through them. What's your take on that? Well, the truth is that was true for me earlier, mm-hmm. but in the last probably 15 mm-hmm. years, I notice it all the time. Really? Yeah. I can see so clearly how whatever is happening in my life Mm -hmm. is exactly the thing I need at that moment, whether it's positive or negative. Hmm. How do you put that forth to other people? Is it enough to just tell them that? Or do you have to kind of walk through situations with them and point out God working in each one of the steps? They're not all the same. Right. So I get to know them. Uh That is my first basis for sponsoring someone Uh is, you know, spending time talking and getting to know people and getting to know how they hear Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and getting to know what things mean to them as opposed to what they mean to Mm me. Because not everybody hears the same way. Right. So I get to know them first and then we go through the steps Mm -hmm. 
and I get to know them even better. Hmm. And then sometimes, you know what, they don't want to. Yeah. They just don't want to do it. Yeah. And so I always suggest that they pay close attention mm -hmm. to what happens when they're doing it their way. And then when they decide that they don't like it, come talk to me and we'll figure out how to try to do it God's way. So you're advising self-realization as the way that they need to proceed in those situations. And then somewhere along the way, you'll point out to them where God was working, where maybe they didn't notice it, huh? Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have people say things to me that look very negative to them. Yeah, sure. And I try to find the positive right. in that and give them two sides yeah. to look at. You know, and that's such an important thing to do with people. One of the difficulties I had over the years for a long time was knowing what to say to people when they would express something really awful that was happening to them, like friends who've gotten cancer diagnoses or uh, people who were going through exceptionally difficult divorces or men who had experienced financial ruin and, you know, knowing what to say instead of there, there, it'll get better, finding a way to contextualize it within this is a gift. This situation, as awful as it is, is a future gift because you're being able to get through this with God's help. If you believe that God's going to help you get through this, your ability to get through this will be the experience that you need to share with someone down the road who's going through the same kind of thing to give them the hope that they can get through it. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. For me, it's important to know when somebody just needs to be held yeah, and somebody just needs to be All comforted said. so that they can get to the point where they can hear that. Yeah. I appreciate you pointing that out. I feel like I do that some, but the fact that you just pointed it out so starkly to me is, is important. I've, that's a, that's a nugget that I will get from this. And especially there was a point at which when people say, I'm praying for you, it always used to make me wonder, what, what do you mean you're, you're praying? What does it mean when someone says, I'll pray for you? Uh, is it their prayer that somehow wakes God up to Howard's situation or what's going on? And then somewhere along the way, I think it was my sponsor who said, when they're saying they'll pray for you, all that means is that they love you. And I thought, hmm, Prayer, love, God. Wow. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Sometimes for me, uh -huh. sometimes there isn't really anything else I can yeah. say at that uh -huh. moment. But praying for you means I'm thinking mm -hmm. about you. Mm -hmm. And if I'm thinking about you, that means I care yeah. about you. And sometimes that's enough. It was for yeah. me. When people would say that they were praying for me, my, my entire family predeceased me. I am the only one left in my immediate family. Hmm, mm -hmm. And I have never felt alone. Hmm, hmm. I felt more alone when I was young and I had my whole family than I have in these last few years when I have been basically mm -hmm. alone as far as family yeah. goes, because I have so many people in my life who, who tell me they think about me in whatever way they choose to do that. Yeah, that's a really marvelous feeling, too, to know that so many people care and you're on their heart. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a beautiful realization to have as well. You mentioned your, your family predeceasing you. Were, were any of those occasions so difficult that, that you needed a lot more AA than others, or, or was it pretty steady all along? Well... My dad had Alzheimer's uh -huh. and he had Alzheimer's for several yeah. years. So it was kind of like losing him slowly. Mm. But I spent a lot of time going up to see him. And I will always be grateful to AA for the gift of allowing me to be out of myself enough to, to go up mm. there. I would drive up, mm -hmm. took an hour and a half, and I would stay with him for mm -hmm. the weekend. And I would give his wife mm -hmm. a break and I would get to be mm -hmm. with him. And even though he didn't remember mm -hmm. a lot, he always remembered my mm -hmm. name mm -hmm. and he remembered that I was his daughter Wow! and I could make him smile and he could make me smile. Wow. And I will always remember that he died in 2010. Mm -hmm. And um, I am grateful mm -hmm. for the opportunity AA gave mm -hmm. me 
to be there for my family. I was there for my dad. I was there for my brother and my sister and my mom. And it didn't matter what they did or Mm -hmm. didn't do, what they were capable of. Because we all have, in my Mm -hmm. family, there's a bit of narcissism in my family. Alcoholism had a component. Mm -hmm. My mom and my brother were narcissistic. Mm -hmm. And my sister was paranoid. Mm -hmm. And it just, you know, there's that narcissistic component that goes through. But none of that mattered to me. What mattered to me is what Mm -hmm. I did. And that is a gift that I didn't even know I would be getting. Mm. Because when I'm left Mm -hmm. with it, it's like I can remember the fun times that my mom and I would sat and talked when she was dying Mm -hmm. and the funny things we would remember Mm. and how happy she was that I was there. Mm. And that wasn't always true in her life. And my sister and my brother-in-law still checks in with me from time Mm. to time. There's just something about the gift of being useful, of being engaged in somebody else's life Mm -hmm. and out of your head that is beyond priceless. I mean, I I tell you how much it means to me to have been given that. You've mentioned that several times today, and, and I appreciate your calling attention to the gratitude that you have for AA around the good things that have happened in your life and and giving credit back to a program that gave you what you needed to get through those with the right kind of perspective, which it sounds like being able to sit with your father and your mother and being able to be there for your family as they're predeceasing you, but still being as grateful as you can be to the program for taking you to the place where you can be that way is just, I think that's, that's really, that's really just extraordinary. So 48 years is a long time. Were there ever any times within your sobriety that something occurred that the first thought was taking a drink or did you ever, was that never an issue for you? I had one very interesting experience. Uh huh. I didn't have the thought of taking a drink to take the edge off of things ever. But what I did have is about four years ago, Uh I was sitting by myself. I was just thinking about some things, getting ready to go to work the next Uh day and just, you know, figuring out what was going on. Somebody I had spoken with. And this thought came in my head, you know, they really make a big deal out of that one drink. (laughs) You can't have one drink. Now I'm 44 years sober at that time. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you could have a drink. You could have mm-hmm. one. It's been 44 years. And then because I had been in meetings, I had been of service, I had done the the steps, and I continued to do 10 and 11 and 12, the next thought was, you idiot. Mm. No, you can't have one yeah. drink. But, Howard, I have seen that thought take people out at 40 and yeah, 45. as have I, it's tragic when you see it happen. And, you know, I wonder if it's one of my friends calls it wanting to peer over the edge of the cliff. Just that curiosity <laughs> to see, is that is that really a sheer drop off there? Or, And of course, my feeling is when you're backing away from the program, the ground feels solid under feet right up to the edge of the cliff. You can be backing away from the middle of the program. And then all of a sudden, one day you're thinking, I've been sober a pretty long time. What's one drink? Right. But I had that Uh thought and had not been backing away from the program. I was still right in the middle of it. But had I had that thought, backing away from it, I'd seen it happen in other people's lives where they just went and took the drink. There's a guy now who was sober 30 years Mm. and thought, one drink is not going to hurt. Yeah. And now he's back for a couple of months. I have a friend who, who had had that happened to him with the CBD. Uh, And like me, he had been a big pot smoker in his time. And, you know, one little thing kind of led to another little bit bigger thing. Sooner or later, he got to the point where he essentially slipped. Started out innocently enough, though. Right. But I'm glad to hear you say that. What do you say to new people who, who look at the number of years you've been sober and maybe a little bit intimidated by it or may have the attitude of, well, 
of course you get it, Diane. You've been sober 48 years, but you know I'm I'm working on six to nine months here, and I'm struggling. How can you possibly? That's a lifetime ago. You you have more time sober than I have alive, and I get that a lot. You do? Yeah. How do you respond to that? <laughs> well, the truth is that the changes have come in internally for me. Yeah. Uh huh. Externally. I still work the same program I did when I was six months, a year, 10 Uh years, 20 Uh years. It's still the same program. It's necessary to apply the spiritual principles in my life every Mm -hmm. day. It's necessary to find ways to be of service every Mm -hmm. day. It's necessary to be Mm self-supporting. And I wanted to share, this has been such a huge part of my recovery um, I don't know about you, but music has always had a special place in me my too. heart. I have always felt like music healed mm-hmm. me in broken places, sure. and I didn't even sure. know they were mm-hmm. broken. And I had, when I was mm-hmm. new, um, there there are people in AA who got together, and they do music meetings, and they do creative sharing meetings so that people can share that heartfelt stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I got sober and I had been told by my mother that I couldn't sing and I should never do that to anybody's Mm -hmm. ears. But I loved to sing and I loved the music. As the years have gone by, Mm -hmm. I have been drawn to different people. They've been placed in my life out of nowhere. I mean, I can't tell you where some of them Mm -hmm. have come from have taught me how to stop being afraid, Mm. have taught me how to sing, have taught me how to connect with the music and have allowed me to express myself. And it is one of the greatest gifts I have ever Mm. been given to be part of a musical tribe Mm -hmm. that just finds absolute joy in connecting with each other musically. Nobody says anything unkind to anybody, no matter what stage of music they're in. And I would just want to say to anybody who is new and struggling, if you have any gift and someone has told you that it's not good enough, don't believe them. Right. Yeah, I get that. And that's a beautiful way to think about it. I don't know that I've seen too many of those kind of meetings or groups around where I live, but maybe they're all over and I just haven't I haven't partaken of them. One of the things that a realization I had recently, Diane, and it actually came from listening to an interview with Fran Lebowitz. And uh, one of the things she said in there was she said that she had learned how to play the clarinet when she was a kid. And she, at some point along the way, realized that she was never going to get any better than she was, that she would never be good enough to play in an orchestra or a symphony. But yet she still enjoyed doing it. And that at some point along the way, you have to appreciate your enjoyment for that which you can do at the time you're doing it without having to worry about, will you be able to take that somewhere in the future or or having unrealistic expectations. And for me, I I learned how to play the drums when I was a kid. And for years, I didn't play because of where I lived. And it's hard to have a drum kit in a lot of places. But recently, I've started in the last several years, I've started getting back involved in it, knowing that I'm probably never going to be playing in a band. I've played in a few in the past, but not much, that I'll probably never uh, have the chops of some of the people who I see out there but I'm enjoying doing it. Even if it's just by myself, it's a gas. It's, it's a lot of fun to do. Do you find the same same thing with your music? I think I have come to appreciate the ability. I, I have a unique voice uh-huh. and it's mine. Yeah. And other people appreciate it. And it's been an incredible growing experience. Mm-hmm. One more reason to never give up. Yeah. Just don't. Don't give up because wherever you go, I also write poetry. Hmm. It never occurred to me I would ever do that. I started writing when I first got sober and then I skipped a few years. Uh But about 20, 22 years ago, I just started writing and I wrote just a ton of stuff. And every once in a while, yeah, I posted on Facebook and people identify with it and really like it. And and it's just one more way. Uh To be connected to the people who walk this journey with me. Yeah, that's a really remarkable way to think about it. You know, it's like the, the God in me acknowledges the God in you. 
that namaste way of thinking about our connection with each other. And, and music is a great way to connect because it does, it transcends language, it transcends a lot along the way. Well, you know, this has just been marvelous. I've really, really enjoyed getting to know you. One of the great things about doing this is that I can get a bit bigger and broader picture of what I see as a somebody who's living a pretty content life in the middle of AA. So what I would say to anybody who thinks, can I make it to 48 years? I would say, Diane did it. Diane is doing it. I think I think that's just amazing. Howard. Is there any anything else that you wanted to kind of add at the end, your message to the, the world of alcoholics out there with regard to AA? Um, it doesn't have to be profound. It, it could just be something simple. There are so many cliches. Yeah. Don't quit before the miracle happens. But the one thing I know is that you never have to be alone. Yeah. However, if you choose to be alone, to have some alone time, mm-hmm. We won't stop you from doing that either. Hmm. If you do what's in front of you one day at a time Hmm. and you don't take a drink, Mm -hmm. you will be amazed. Hmm. And I don't mean just before you're halfway through. I mean, you will be amazed on a daily basis what's possible for someone, someone like us, Howard, someone who had absolutely no ability mm-hmm. to live one more day. Yeah. Just don't drink and move forward. Wow. That is an outstanding message to go out on here. And uh, it's so inspiring. It can mean different things to different people, but it's as powerful for a newcomer as it is for somebody with 30 or 40 years. And to me today, you've, you've really proven what the middle of the program looks like. And I try and stay in the middle of the program myself. And it's beautiful to be in the middle of the program with you. Thank you again for doing this. I love you. You're a really beautiful person. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing this, Diane. Thank you, Howard. I love you, too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Diane G. for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least three people you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast should be of help to more and more people. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. You can also listen at our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.